Ashley Bowder can do 32 fouettes on point, which for most principal dancers with the New York City Ballet or a major company is not that big a deal. But what is a really big deal is she did 32 fouettes on point when she was very pregnant. And it got my attention. I saw it on YouTube. And so I had to look up everything in the last few years that was Ashley Bowder. And what I found was she's also the author of a new children's book called Welcome to Ballet School with Quarto Publishing. It's twice the length of most children's picture books at 64 pages. It's got dynamic and adorable illustrations. And the most important message is that boys and girls can dance ballet. It's an inclusive, it's diverse, and if a boy wants to wear a tutu too, he can. Ashley Bowder is a feminist. She also has very strong opinions about how the institution of ballet needs to have new structure. We need to have more equality. We need to have more opportunity for female choreographers, female composers, and she's also very pro-election because she's on the Arts Council and needs to see more support for the arts. Right now, the New York City Ballet Company is furloughed. Broadway is closed. Ballet dancers are out of work. We talked about the pandemic. We talked about change. We talked about the need for improvements in the arts. I am so excited to share this dialogue with you. Ashley Bowder. Here we go. Welcome to Passion to Power with your host, Michelle Zeitlin. She's a creative producer who quote-unquote wears many hats. She's also a talent and literary manager and founded the company Morzap Productions and Management. She develops people and projects across all media. Her guests encompass the gamut, from artists to authors, actors to activists, programming executives, development executives, and A&R. Michelle Zeitlin is excited to share her tips and tools for success through her conversations, mostly via Zoom during quarantine. Please welcome Michelle Zeitlin, Passion to Power. All right, Ashley, please launch into the following. How did you become this amazing feminist ballerina? Uh, well... I think um, I, I'm a politics major at Fordham University. So that's something that I kind of came to a little bit later in life. I don't think that I would have um, chosen politics right out of the gate at the age of 18. Um, but, you know, something that I've been in New York City Ballet for 20 years, I've been in the ballet world for a long time, and something that I've experienced over and over and over again is, um, is being made to feel inferior because I was a woman. Um, like me wanting to be a director someday was funny. Um, that, you know, always being told what to do when my male counterparts kind of got to do what they wanted to do sometimes. Um, having to, you know, be quiet because somebody else is speaking who's not female. Um, there's just been a lot over the years that has been like that. And, um, and, and public statements people have made that aren't okay with me that, you know, I don't, I don't really mind if choreographers or directors or people think that ballet should be traditional and should be the way it is, but not leaving room for female voices, not leaving room for people who don't identify as male and female, um, not leaving room for men who want to be on point or women who don't. 
um, is just not okay with me. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to want it for yourself. You don't have to want it in general, but um, denying others that freedom um, to me is just fundamentally wrong. I noticed in an article, I think it was with the New York Times that you said that I'm speaking up because dancers have a voice. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think that traditionally, you know, it dances, you know, a non-speaking art form. We don't make noise except for maybe our pointers when they're too hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then we stomp on them. And that, yeah, and then we bang them on the wall until they don't. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think we're, we're used to hearing male voices in dance all the time. The majority of choreographers, the major, or prolific choreographers, I should say, the majority of company directors are male. We're always getting the male perspective. Um, and, you know, female ballet dancers aren't necessarily um, encouraged to speak up. We're told to stay in line. We're told to, you know, to conform because there are, you know, it goes back to to the, the, the beginning of the education process of, of dance, which I think a lot of the roots of any society, any of society's problems go back to education. And, um, you know, there, there are so many little girls who wanna be ballet dancers and there aren't as many little boys who wanna be ballet dancers. So we're taught at a very young age that we're expendable that if we don't get in line and we're not quiet and we don't listen and we don't do all of these things they're telling us to do, that they don't need us because there's another girl over there. Um, and, you know, we also, we spend more time in the classes and preparing for the classes. We have extra point classes. We have to sew those point shoes. When we do our makeup, it takes longer because you've got to put false eyelashes on and you have to do the bun and you have to pin in the tiara. Um, I mean, I think some of my male counterparts would argue with you that they spend as much time on their makeup, which is in some cases absolutely true, um, but in general, not necessary. Um, that but they're we, usually spend spending time, time on their makeup for their drag shows, not necessarily to present the ballerina on stage in a traditional ballet company. <laughs> Very true. I mean, I do have a male colleague that spends probably longer on his hair than, than mine because he needs his bouffant to be. No doubt. But, um, you know, we're, we spend so much time doing that that there isn't time to speak up. There's, you know, I'm, when I'm sitting and sewing my point shoes, what am I gonna, else am I going to be doing? You know, and, and men have so much more time uh, to be creative, to have those conversations, to, to do those things. Um, and I think, you know, it comes down to the time commitment and the way we are educated. When did you find your voice about how, how long into your career as a ballerina did you have the courage to start speaking out? Um, a long time. And I think that um, for a long time, I was, my, my boss was not somebody that I felt I could speak out around. I felt like there were, there were real repercussions within my company um, if I spoke too loudly. And, you know, he, he was one of the sources of, of, of repression, I think, for females. And for me in particular, I definitely felt that. And, um, you know, I felt like being too loud at my work uh, was was not gonna be good for my career. 
and I didn't really feel that I could speak out until maybe about five years ago where I really just kind of went off the rails and was like, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. I saw um, a poster at New York City Ballet advertising five choreographers on one gala night and the marketing department decided to put the poster in black and white and it was five white males and all of the music was by men and it was just I I just looked at that and I was like this no we can't have this anymore where are the women where are the people of color where are they because they're not there they're not on the main stage and you know we talk about there are a lot of women choreographers in you know modern dance and contemporary and in smaller companies and wonderful that's wonderful but that's a you know can be considered a stepping stone to the main stage. Everybody wants to be in choreographing for those big companies. Everybody wants to choreograph for New York City Ballet or ABT or the Royal Ballet or these huge companies. And where are the women? They literally were not there at all. And I just felt that, I just felt so upset about it. I know that like uh, the New York Times came out with an article about it. People started talking about it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, me too. Like I, I think of this too. And this has happened to me too. Like, I, I feel like I've been repressed and I haven't been encouraged the way my white male colleagues have been encouraged and even encouraged when they have failed and given other chances. And, you know, all of the women that I saw come through maybe didn't do the best work of their career, but they weren't invited back. And I've seen men come through and they put something on stage that it's just not it's not good and they get another chance everyone looks to ballerinas because they embody this sort of dream a fairy-like dream right um beautiful and life and um ethereal and able to leave the the floor and take us with them. And I know this because I was a classical dancer, but I also was sort of out of the box loud dancer who also, by the way, had boobs. So that was a whole other story in my journey. (laughs) Now, thank God some ballerinas are a little more full bodied, but um, I, I love that you are still grounded in the fact that you are a very feminine, very beautiful, a very classical dancer, but you have given a voice and hopefully given an open path to other females in the company who have not had a voice. And I also think that dancers, myself included, we've been accused of, because we are physical beings, not having a voice beyond just an opinion but really sort of told not to speak because it is a physical medium. So I think it is so important to empower young girls and I would love for you to speak to that. My audience is made up of two analytics, my pod, which is in the 45 to 60 pod of people pivoting and pirouetting in their careers. And then the 18 to 22 aspiring filmmakers, dancers, triple threats for Broadway, uh, actresses, models, What advice would you give yourself, the 18-year-old self now, looking back, that might help the next aspiring artist? Well, I want 
to go back to something you said, and 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 I'll certainly answer that. Um, you know, we're told to be ethereal in life and all of these things, and I love that. Like, I you know, I I call myself a feminist. I am a feminist, but I equate feminism to um, an analysis of power, with that, with taking the sex out of it. Like, who has the power? Um, who are we giving the power to? Um, is it equal? All of that, and in every sense of the word, equal, not ge- not just gender, everything. Um, and I, you know, I go back, and you know, and I just think that I am kind of a loud dancer, and I've been told my whole career that it's too much. You have too much energy. It's it's too harsh. It's too this. It's too that. And um, and then I need to be softer, and I need to be more feminine. And I've been told that a lot that particular word I need to be more feminine um and I'm just like but I'm a woman and I identify as a woman and I am am straight like I'm all these things that you think a fem feminine person should be I like purple and pink you know I wear <laughs> I don't know I'm in a tutu <laughs> for god's sake <laughs> You know, and it's just like, I've, and every time, like I, I had a coach that like, every time I did something that was like soft and graceful, she'd be like, see, you can do this. Like, I know, <laughs> like, I know I can do this. You don't believe in me. You have this thing that you think I'm doing. And if you want it to be softer, just say, you know what? like maybe we could make it a little bit softer here and then you can punch it over there but like but it's constantly with this like this rhetoric that makes me feel like i'm like manly or masculine because i have a big jump and because i have a lot of energy i was like, a jumper too i love that you're a big jumper i love men's class i love well i love men's class i take men's yes. class i'm like the you know there was an article and i think dance magazine that followed me around for a day and it followed me right to men's class at School of American Ballet. <laughs> and that's where I spent my hour and a half training that day. Um, because I do jump in my repertoire. But, you know, just because I'm like this big, powerful jumper, that means that like, I somehow lose some of my femininity, which is ridiculous. Like that, you know, of co- well, you have this big jump. So like, of course you can't do this adagio part. And I'm like, what? That doesn't even make sense. And, um, you know, it's like, it's not either or. It's like, I can do this and I can do this. Watch. <laughs> and I've had people be like, wow, like, you can do that. And it's just like, it's so like heartbreaking when people say that and defeating that, you know, I'll come back to your question that what, what would I say to my 18 year old self would be like, they don't need to believe in you. You believe in you. They don't need to. And if they don't believe in you, find someone else who does. And I think, you know, I've been taking this, um, actually I've been taking four classes at Fordham because why not? I can't perform. I've got some time, um, limited time, but I've got time. And I've been taking this organizational leadership class and they were talking um, about promoting women, like gender in the, in the workplace culture. And um, one of the things was knowing the difference between a mentor and a sponsor. Um, you know, a mentor is somebody that's going to give you advice. They're going to give you good advice and they're going to be there to give you advice. But a sponsor is somebody who champions you, who believes in you 
and who promotes you. And I think that's the difference that we have a lot. We always talk about finding mentors for people, but you've got to find somebody who sponsors you, somebody who actually believes in you and who will fight for you to, to, to progress. They're going to go and say, no, this person is really great. You should give them this part or you should watch them one more time. You should give them another chance or whatever it is somebody that's literally in your corner fighting for you not somebody who's going to be like well in your situation I would do this because that's wonderful we need mentors but more than that we need sponsors I love that um I have a couple thoughts so I love the word sponsor because it kind of parallels to money and money to power and money and power is very important in a male-dominated society and yet I think as women we're a little timid to ask for money and power, a seat at the table. So when it came to your wanting to choreograph and create your own works in the collective, tell me about that. Did you get a sponsor? How did you get financial backing? Um, uh, friends, like patrons that, that believed in me, that knew, you know, that when I, when I told them what I wanted to do, they, they believed in my plan and and thought that it was a good idea. And basically what I, you know, what I want to do is collaborate with people um, that don't get a lot of opportunities or that need more opportunities on a small level because I'm not a mainstream company. I'm just one little stepping stone, hopefully in somebody's prolific career. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I can get, I can get people, I can get stage time in New York, which is important because you don't know who's coming to those shows at the Joy. Well, we do. We know who's coming. Important people are coming, right? Um, and there's not a lot of seats at the Joyce. And there's not a lot of seats at the Joyce, but um, I've sold out every performance I've ever done there for my company. And, um, you know, the people that my sponsors, my, my monetary sponsors for my company are, are people that I keep in touch with and, and they believe in the, the mission that I'm, that I'm doing and they're involved in it you know they come to rehearsals they ask me like why did you choose this music and we have open conversations about what we're doing um and because i also believe that you know transparency is key it's something that i think we don't get in big companies all the time things fall through the cracks and you're like wait why did this happen like i didn't i didn't know this was happening um and you know or why decisions are getting made um like why don't we have more female composers? I've never danced to a composition by a woman at New York City Ballet in 20 years. Like, why? Um, can we discuss, like, maybe something going forward that would ensure that we add female composers to our repertoire? Um, you know, those are conversations that I have all the time with people. It's like, well, it's not like, am I going to hire a female composer? I'm like, who am I going to hire? Who have you listened to lately? Have you been to any concerts where you heard a new composer and you thought, who is that? Do you think I should know about them? Um, you know, I, I have friends all the time who are like, hey, I just heard this person. Like right now I'm really, um, I just discovered Jessie Montgomery. Um, this, uh, she's, she's a black woman and her music is awesome. And a friend of mine was just like, Hey, do you want to choreograph like a solo for me during quarantine? I found this composer that I love. And then I listened to it and I was like, oh, what else did she write? And so, you know, I have conversations like that with friends, with patrons, with um, people like that. And that's, you know, that's really like how I'm trying to keep 
everything connected, everything transparent, and everything, you know, worth doing. Because if people aren't on board with you, then, you know, there's not, there's not a whole lot you can do. So for me, having those conversations and working towards a greater purpose than myself is, um, is, is a paramount um, ideal that, I, that I'm striving for. Do you feel that you were born with an eight choreographic talent? Uh, not really. I don't think I'm the greatest choreographer and I try to, I only do it if I really want to. Um, I've always like, since I was young, like soft steps to music and I don't think I'm particularly innovative in that way. I think there, I have a lot to learn. And I think that um, I've actually been thinking a lot about how we can empower young women to choreograph more at a younger age, how we can educate them because we don't really have those systems in ballet education, um, in, in big schools and things like that. You know, we have these choreographic institutes and workshops, but you know, we could have programs that, that teach us, teach how to use core formations, you know, how to cover space, um, basics of partnering, like what works and what doesn't for women, because we know how to hold ourselves and be lifted. But, you know, I've wasted a lot of time in the studio trying lifts that the guy's like, you know, it doesn't work. I'm like, no, 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 trust me, in my head it works. And you know what? It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the glory of working in the studio. That's that's the fabulous experience. That's experiential, you know, is it's finding that. I've been following some amazing choreographers through this pandemic, through their Instagram, and people are doing such crazy, fun things. You know, I, I personally, as a choreographer, love guy-on-guy -guy choreography. I, I love it because I love the strength and the masculinity of a man lifting a man and throwing them across the room, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think we're moving in that direction. You see a lot more of same-sex partnering. I did a fellowship um, at Center for Ballet and the Arts at NYU last year, and um, my, the entire thing I did was on gender fluidity in the potata, gender and racial fluidity in the potata, and uh, with a goal of making a film where um, it kind of blurs race and gender um, so that it doesn't really matter. I choreographed a potata on a man and a woman, and then did the exact same choreography on two men and two women, and figured out what worked and what didn't. And then I made like a little preliminary film of like the first little section of it, um, but everybody's different races, different genders, different combinations. And I, you know, I think it's really interesting. You've seen a lot of, of work like that. Justin Peck has done some stuff. Um, Lauren Lovett has done it. I mean, it's all over contemporary and modern for sure for many, many years. But, you know, it's something that like female ballet dancers, we aren't taught how to weight share and do that. So you don't see a lot of female, female positives. But, you know, I talked to my friends who were in Paul Taylor and I'm like, how did you do that? They're like, oh, well, you put your weight here. And like, you know, they, they do it all the time. So right. it's, it's not something that's new. It's just something that um, needs to be. It's new in the ballet world. Yeah, it's new in the ballet world. And I think it needs to be incorporated a little bit more to satisfy um, the, the wants and needs of, of a new generation of not only dancers, but audience members, too. about the ballet school book. Yeah, so um, I, I actually had um, a publisher from London call me and or email me actually and um, ask if I've ever thought about writing a children's book. 
and yeah I guess she'd been following me on Instagram and I have my email on there so people can contact me and um, I I was like actually yes because that's literally all I'm reading right now I have a three-year-old and now my daughter's four at the time I was like yeah I have a three-year-old and that's pretty much all I read Um, so you know she came up with this idea for uh, you know a, a ballet school book with maybe a story attached so we could have interaction in it and um, it's twice as long as normal children's books but you're they're usually 32 pages this is 64 um, because it's a two-part thing but it's also a book that you can come back to again and again um, it's you know you can take it in sections or take what you want from it and it doesn't really have to be in order but it does go through a little um, a little ballet class with the major things for bar and then a little bit of center um, like grand jeté and, and you know fun things like that and it explains how um, what they are and it shows pictures and the illustrations are really wonderful and uh, then we read the story of Sleeping Beauty and we take the steps that we've learned and we figure out what characters that they should be with or we act out the scenes and one of the big things for both the editor and I was the emphasis on diversity and inclusion in the book because that is something that is core to my own personal message my personal mission in life Um, and so every kid looks different they have a different background um, different skin color and in the book uh, when we're talking about the fairies the boys wear tutus also and when we're doing the rose adagio two of the little girls wear the tunics like the men and they and they partner um so and it's never discussed that it's weird or different it just is what it is and we just we show boys and tutus we show girls and tutus everything is normal um to prove that you know you can really just do it however you want if you want to wear the tutu and you happen to be a boy we're not judging you it doesn't matter wow is there an aurora Yes, um, at the end they all got kind of get to pick. Well, they like they each play like different characters throughout. So you know, sometimes my daughter's in the book, so sometimes she's Carabas, and sometimes she's the Lilac Fairy. And um, I think at the end she is she's Aurora at the end, but she's not in the middle when they do the Rosa Adagio. It's another little girl. And was it Pettipa that did the major original choreography of Sleeping Beauty? Mm-hmm. Do you introduce some of that? Is that considered public domain these days? <laughs> I'm sure it's public domain, but we we didn't talk about that. That I think that would have been a detail that is kind of locked on um, kids that are it, it's for ages four to seven, and so um, going into the history of it, I think would have been a little bit of a distraction from our our purpose. So I assume then that you teach a little bit of port de bras and what a first position is and a second position. Is that right? Yeah, we do the foot positions, we do the arm positions, like one through five. We do tendus and degages and fondue and passe and coupe and développé and rond de jambe and grand batlon. There's even a little funny scene where um, this actually happened to me when I was little. Um, the teacher in it is my teacher, Marcia, and um, she puts her hand out for Violet to do a grand batlon front and Violet falls down. She rushes so hard she falls on her backside. And um, we have a little lesson about it doesn't matter if you fall down as long as you get back up. Yeah, well, that's a good piece of advice, not only for four to seven year olds, <laughs> but all of us. 
So during a pandemic, it's been really interesting for a lot of writers who are trying to launch their books. I actually had an interview with Krishan Trotman, who um, you should check out her four books. They're about very strong females in politics, including Nancy Pelosi. And uh, there's four separate books. She was also uh, just um, moved up the ladder at Hachette as one of the few African-American editorial staff at such a high position. So shout out to Krishan, she's awesome. But she said that with the pandemic, what was supposed to be a sort of traveling book tour ended up being a lot of social media. So how have you been manifesting your social media to get this book out there? Yeah, I've been just, you know, reaching out to my friends and getting them to to post on their social media. I've done, um, I've done lots of um, Instagram live readings and chats about the book and, um, yeah, just like making little videos with Violet, reading the book to her and uh, trying to get, you know, all of this going. Um, my book came out in August and every, yeah, everything just didn't happen. We knew that going into it, um, but we did a really big push before the book came out. And we actually, um, I think right before the week before the book came out, Amazon bought the last of our first editions. Wow. To sell. So, so they're selling. So they're selling. Um, and we went into a second print. Um, so that's great. Muzzle top. Um, thank you. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'll be doing more periodically because I think like one of the beauties of maybe not having to do like a book tour is that you can just consistently keep going and people aren't getting sick of it. And, you know, I'm not getting burnt out. <laughs> um, so I mean, I plan to just keep going with it and and, and doing that. And I also um, am hoping to write a second book too. I think ABT just put out a book also about boys who dance, right? Yeah, I think it's called Boys Dance Two or or something like that, which is really it, it's really great um, that we have this huge wave of of inclusion um, in in the dance world. I think it's it's long overdue it's much needed it's something that kind of exploded in the press about five years ago where you know we did go where are all the female choreographers or where's the diversity like where are the people of color not only like you know choreographing but like on stage where are they I sit on the Arts Policy Council for Biden and Harris. Um, so uh, I've had conversations to help shape some of, of the policies that they will have um, should they get elected. I should say when they get elected. Yeah! Um, and I've been um, trying to actively work with the artists for Biden and Harris um, to, to do things. I have uh, hopefully something coming up, um, uh, like a political kind of call to arms for Pennsylvania. That's where I'm from, Key Battleground State, trying to host a, um, a call to action, um, big Zoom event uh, to try to convince people that they should vote my way. Um, <laughs> uh, but what I would tell my daughter is, um, there's so much more on the line than just one issue. But one of the most important things and one of the way people one of the ways people vote are single issue things. And for us, um, for, for me as a, as a voter, it's, um, it's the freedom that this country promised 
that isn't freedom. And I've just, I've just read two really incredible books, one called White Rage by Carol Anderson and um, one called uh, Black Lives Matter, hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation um, by Kianga Taylor. And it is um, just like, they're both really incredible. And, and Taylor says something that, can we live in a non-racist society under capitalism? And the answer is no, because it's all institutional. And the only way to change those things is to change the people who are creating these laws and the people who are upholding them. And um, there's so much that, that needs to change. And for me, the social values of this country are, are paramount. And I don't think that we can make a whole lot of progress, especially right now um, with Black Lives Matter coming back alive and really going from that moment we had back in 2000, I think 14 or 15 with it and and making it into a movement and, and into social change for um, for everyone, really for everyone, for, um, for any person of color, for um, poor white working class, for, for everyone, we all have to work together in order for it to change. And, um, and we haven't been. And I, I want people that elected that are, are gonna help us work together and they're gonna help us um, shape that legislation so that it benefits the people who really need to be lifted up and given opportunities. Are you gonna run for election? Maybe realign the National Endowment of the Arts? Oh my gosh, wouldn't that be nice if somebody actually did something for the arts? Um, I mean, that's also one of the reasons I'm on board with Biden-Harris because um, they have an arts policy council as candidates. And Obama did that back in 2008. And I got to be on a subcommittee um, called Artists for Obama and help fundraise and help spread word. And I canvassed in Pennsylvania and I did things. and. Um, I, I tried to actually do it for Hillary when she was running, um, but I was really pregnant <laughs> for a portion of it. And then I had a newborn, <laughs> so it was really hard. I did phone banking for for Hillary um, for the primary, leading up to the primary, because I could, I could sit. That's all I could do. I could sit. <laughs> um, I couldn't canvas or do anything. But that was well after the 32 fuetes on point when you were pregnant, right? Yes, <laughs> that was. How many months was that in your pregnancy? The original post um, that I did all the fuetes was six months. That was insane. And I don't know how I came upon this. It was almost like a meme. Everyone was like, watch this. 32 fuetes on point with your big pregnant belly. It was the most adorable thing in the world. That's what got my attention to reach out. Yeah, well, I did post one at like almost nine months pregnant but it was like maybe like six what days <laughs> and in demi point then, i hope no <laughs> on point wow i i did class up until my due date on point i didn't jump after five months though because i didn't want to hurt my back that's just crazy well my daughter would love to babysit yours <laughs> and uh, I can't tell you what a thrill it is to sit in front of you and get to talk to you and embrace your stories. I appreciate, why don't you do a shout out how people can follow you, find your book, etc. 
Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is simply Ashley Bowder, at Ashley Bowder. I'm on Facebook too, you can just search my name. I'm on Twitter at Ashley Bowder, and you can find my book. Um, I would suggest doing your local bookshop first because we wanna support small business. But um, if your local bookshop doesn't have, have it, it's called Welcome to Ballet School and you can find it on Amazon. Welcome to Ballet School. Everybody go out and buy Welcome to Ballet School. Read it to your four to seven-year-old. Or uh, if you have a really precocious one like you do. Her name is Violet, right? Your daughter? Yes, Violet. Um, and tell your husband he's a cool dude because I, I really admire men who can live with feminists and still have a spine and support us and our endeavors and um, you know I love a good strong man with a good sense of who he is and a good strong purpose. My husband is actually my number one champion and I would say with he he's one person that pushes me to actually do more and I have to tell him sometimes to stop because it's overwhelming because he's like why don't you do this or do this or do this and he is really um, He's always in my corner. He's always supportive. He's always pushing me to think bigger. And, um, I, you know, he's just, I married the right guy. Fantastic. I'm so happy for you. We say muzzle tough. <laughs> this uh, podcast is going to be put out in the universe on all the major platforms, Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher, Radio Public. And like you said, with the small bookstores, there's a whole bunch of other smaller distributors. And it is supported by Anchor FM. So I encourage people to check out all those platforms. I am thrilled to have you, Ashley Bowder, as my guest. And everybody should purchase her book, follow her, and support the arts. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me.